We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you want to open your Bibles there. 1 Samuel chapter 25, title of the message today is Finishing Well. Finishing Well. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I used to run cross country in high school, uh, sadistic sport really, I, I don't know, you know who came up with it, but you know, it, it's not a complicated sport. You know, the idea of cross country is that you just run several miles and then you throw up. Well, no, that was my idea. But no, you, you run several miles, you know, typically three or four mile race, and uh, first guy across the finish line wins. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as it gets. But, you know, I learned uh, in, a, in a practical, experiential way one of the most important lessons of my entire life uh, in my short season in cross country, and that was that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. My very first race, I learned this lesson. I, I, I ran, and, and there I was, and, and man, I was out the gate, man. As soon as that pistol went off, I was going, and, uh, and I was in first place for about a quarter of a mile, and then one by one, people started passing me. By the end of the race, I was almost dead last. And there was a couple of people that, that, you know, one guy fell down and twisted his knee and another guy, you know, started throwing up and that was his thing. But, I mean, I came in like, you know, third to last in, in this race. It was, uh, you know, and I was thinking that first quarter of a mile, I'm like, I'm doing great. Look at me. I'm out here. And, and that's not the way I finished. And, you know, it, it is not how you start. It's how you finish. And this lesson applies to everything in life. Um, it, it especially applies to our character, you know. Um, you can have the greatest marriage in the world. You know, you, you, you can be faithful for 40 years in your marriage and one bad decision can ruin everything. You know, somebody's like, hey, what happened to Joe and Sally? Well, he was unfaithful and they got a divorce. And they're like, what? He was faithful to his wife for 40 years. Well, yeah, and then he was unfaithful, and the, everything crumbled, and it, he didn't finish well. So we're going to look at, four, at three things today in, in our text. We're going to look at a man who finished well. We're going to look at a man who finished as a fool. And we're going to look at a man whose finish was jeopardized by his flesh. Let's jump right into it. First point, a man who finished well, First Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel died. This verse hits us especially hard today. Not just because it's Memorial Day and we're remembering those who have died in service of our country. But I think about, you know, two Marines that were uh, part of our church. Um, And they had their funerals just in this last couple of weeks. You know, we buried uh, two of our own. And, and, you know, I, I think about, you know, just what happened there and, and their lives and all, and, and, and how they lived. And, you know, having their memorials, their memorials have common elements. One of the, the, the common elements, and we read it here in our text, is that, 
you know, when somebody dies, the people gather together, and the word says they lamented. And that word in the Hebrew uh, means, you know, just the, with the guts that it sounds like. They just wept. They were, they were so sorrowful, so mournful. And, and that's what people do when, when someone dies. We, we gather together and, and we lament. But something else that's a universal response to death isn't just the, the gathering together and, and the lamenting. But another universal response is that we consider our own mortality. And this is something that is super unique when someone dies, that we gather together, and, and it's only natural, and I always make it a point when I'm doing a memorial service to acknowledge this. It's, it's, it's one of those, those um, unique occasions in life where people come face to face with their own mortality because what goes through your mind when you've lost somebody, especially somebody that you knew, maybe that you had meals with, that you spent time with, and, and you know, there's the missing and there's the heartache of loss, but there's also that sober, just slap in your face reality that says, oh my gosh. I mean, we sat in church together. We listened to the same messages together. Maybe you even reflect on some of the things that you've heard in God's word, you know, and you, you thought, they were sitting here just like I was listening to that. And, and so what happens is your mind starts going there and you start thinking about, wow, gosh, these are the things that are being said about this person. These are the, the things that this person did. And then you start thinking, well, gosh, what are people going to say about me when I'm gone? And who's going to come to my memorial when, when I go? And then you start thinking, especially in light of, I mean, you know, uh, Lee Cohen, you know, just dying a couple of weeks ago, and the man's 40 years old. And it gives real sobering reality to the scriptures that's, that tell us that what is your life? It's like a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. And so you start thinking, holy moly, I mean, this day could be my last. I would have occasion as a paramedic to think about that often, especially, you know, I go to a particular car and a call and there's a guy in his car and I, and I think, you know, this guy left, he probably kissed his wife and kids goodbye, never knowing he'd never make it to work and he'd never make it home. And so, you know, the, the universal response is to start thinking about our own mortality. And the statistics are overwhelming. 10 out of 10 people die. You know, we, we will all die. And, and there's two types of death, and the Bible speaks of it. There's a physical death, and there's a spiritual death. And, and the Bible says regarding our physical death that, that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. In other words, your physical death is appointed by God. There's nothing you can do to change it. Jesus said, who by worrying can add a single cubit to his life? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is nobody. You cannot change that. We are all born with an expiration date stamped by God. And none of us knows when that day is. For some it's longer, for some it's much shorter. And so there is a reality that we will all die physically. Now the Bible teaches why. The Bible says that sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve and that you and I as children of Adam and Eve, as descendants of Adam and Eve, we have inherited that sin nature. You know, uh, psychologists and sociologists will talk about how people are, are intrinsically good 
and that it's society and it's their upbringing that makes them bad. That is not true and it flies in the face of biblical truth. The Bible says that you're a sinner by nature and by choice. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You know, if you do a job and you earn a paycheck, the wages are what you've earned. And so the Bible says you and I have earned death. Now, that applies physically. The reason we have death, the, we, or the reason we have sickness. People say, you know, why does a good God allow bad things ha- to happen to good people? Well, part of the answer is there's no good people. And, and, and the, the other part of that is that because of sin. Sin is what has brought death to the entire human race. And so physically, we will all die. That's just the, the, the fact of life. Now, spiritually, there's another truth. And this has to do with the potential spiritual death. Because the Bible says that when you die, you will stand before God. The Bible tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4.13. And, and so this tells us that when we die physically, we will go and stand before God. And we will give an account of our lives. Now, there's two potential places where you will stand before God. You will absolutely stand before God someday, as will I. And, and the question is... At what court are you going to stand before God? Because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that there's this thing called the great white throne judgment. And there are those that will go and that's the court that you are appointed to if you have rejected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have not trusted in Christ's Christ's atoning work on the cross for you and for me, if you haven't trusted in that, or if you have academically said, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe all of that, and yet your theology is in such a place, your, your, the way you operate is in such a place to where you, you say, yes, I believe that, but... I'm living my life and believe with all of my heart that there's something that I can do to earn a right standing with God that, you know, the whole cosmic balance of the way you live is to say, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad works. And that's what I... And if you're really trusting in that, you're trusting in your works. You're not trusting in Christ's work. And so that needs to be something that you deal with because the, the, the only question on the entry exam to heaven is what did you do with Jesus and you either come to the place to where I I ask you how do you know you're safe and your response is to say because Jesus died for me and I'm trusting in that and if that's wholeheartedly in the place that you're at then you do have the hope of eternal life now people say well that's too simple well what about you know what I have to do in terms of you know the I mean I, I, the, what about all the, the things that the Bible says about how I'm supposed to live my life? I mean, you know, if it's just a matter of I believe that Jesus died for my sin, well, then what's to keep me from living any way I want? <clears throat> well, that brings us to the, to the second court potential place when we stand before God where we will be. The first being the great white throne judgment for those who have rejected the Lord, but the second is the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 14 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He talks about how we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, all in this context refers refers to everybody who has received Christ as their Lord and Savior and is trusting in Him for their salvation. 
And so there at the judgment seat of Christ, what happens is that you're, you're not judged uh, to, in regards to are you, you know, is, is your, your redemption according to your works or not, but rather your reward is what's judged according to your works. I'll put it to you this way. The great white throne judgment is where you will be judged by your works in regards to your redemption. The judgment seat of Christ is where you won't, you, your redemption is settled because you've, you're hidden in Christ. So you go before the judgment seat of Christ and there your judgment is of your works as to regards to your reward. Now, I don't know what reward is going to be in heaven. I mean, eternal life and receiving a resurrection body is reward enough. But the Bible says that what happens there is that at the judgment seat of Christ, all the works, all the things that you have done will pass before God and they will go through a refining fire. And the Bible says that some of the things that you have done are going to go through that fire and they're going to be burned up. Other things that you have done are going to go through that fire and they're going to, they're going to be proven by the fire. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be shown as, as those things like, you know, precious, uh, precious metal, precious stones. This is what the Bible likens it to. And so the wood, hay, and stubble of your life is going to be burned up. All the things that you said, oh, I'm doing this, you know, for God, but really you weren't doing it for God. You had a false motivation. Oh, everybody, look, I'm writing a big fat check to the legacy fund, you know, and, you know, give me a plaque on a wall and, and everybody make a big show of it. The Lord's like, you've had your reward. That thing's going to burn up. But the, but, but the, the widow's might, the one who, who, who just gives and, and serves and, and makes these, just the sacrificial offerings that are pleasing to God, those things will pass through. And so there's a big difference between the two. And we need to understand then, when we think about here Samuel dying, what we need to understand is, gosh, here's a man who has died, who has gone to be with the Lord, and he's gone where all of us are going to go. And Samuel, a great man of God. I mean, the Bible has much to say about him. We'll look at that in just a minute. But here's a great man of God, and yet his destination is the same destination of every single person in this room. Day is coming when the expiration date on your life, time's up, man. And you will die physically and you will go and stand before God. The question is, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to the great white throne judgment or are you going to go to the judgment seat of Christ? And so death has a way of reminding us of this, of the, the fact that we will all stand before God, that we will all give an account of our life. And when we're talking about a memorial and how, you know, these things, the death of someone brings and stores all these things up, well, I'll tell you, this is especially true when the person who has died is a faithful man. Ron referred to that in his prayer today as he was talking about, you know, them as Marines having big shoes to fill. And so we, when we, when we encounter the death of a righteous man, there are some big shoes to fill and, and we do well to hear about their life and we do well to memorialize their life and we do well to take a walk with the fact that says, wow, here's a person that lives such a faithful life to the Lord. Now, what's that say about me? What, 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 what's the issue for my life? 
Because what happens is now you have an enhanced sense of your burden, of of the legacy that you've received, and the responsibility that you have received, the baton that has been passed to you. There is that burden of, of, uh, man, he died, all die, he's before the Lord, giving account of his life, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account of my life. Man, I got to get my act in gear. And this is the universal human experience that happens when someone has died. Now, it's been said that God's work may begin with a man, but it it never ends with a man. It never ends with one man. It begins with a man, but it never ends with one man. Jesus illustrated this truth to his disciples. He said this in Mark's gospel. He said, when, when he, Jesus, had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It speaks of a legacy, of a following. Jesus saying, I'm, I'm going to go, and I'm going to sacrifice my life. I have a cross to bear. And he's saying, you and I, we also have crosses to bear. And we need to take up our cross. And, and, and it doesn't say it in this, in this um, gospel, but it says in another gospel, saying, quoting this same thing, that he says, you need to take up your cross daily. That there is that burden of responsibility. Paul communicated the same truth in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So this is when the, the occasion of Samuel's death happens. Now this is an opportunity for those lamenting to consider all of these things. To consider their own mortality. Consider the, the weight of legacy and responsibility that, that has, has passed and passed to them. See, what you need to understand about Samuel, he's not only Israel's prophet and judge, but he was also used by God to institute the monarchy. And and in so doing, he served as David's mentor, and so his life and his death are very important to David. Now, Samuel wasn't a perfect man. We saw he had issues with with his kids and the way that he raised them, but he was a faithful man. And there's a lot that the Bible has to say about Samuel. We learn here in 1 Samuel that he obeyed God by instituting the monarchy. He knew that the people begging for a king was a profound mistake. He knew that, they, that this was a train wreck decision on the people's part to cry out and had asked the Lord for a king. And yet, nevertheless, in, in his conversing, Samuel's conversing with God... And he's basically pouring his heart out to God saying, they're making a huge mistake. God told Samuel, let them make it. Go go appoint for them a king. And Samuel being obedient to the Lord, facing something that he knew deep down was wrong. And yet God told him, go ahead, give them what they've asked for. Sometimes the worst thing you can get is what you ask God for. And so Samuel does that. First and Second Chronicles gives us an account of, of Samuel's life. It tells us there that Samuel laid the foundation for the organization of the Levites for the service of the sanctuary. It tells us there that he, Samuel, began collecting treasures for the building of the temple, even though it wouldn't happen in his life. He began to collect these things. Why? For the purpose of the people worshiping God. He began to focus on legacy. Goes on to tell us in First and Second Chronicles that, that Samuel was the guy that kept Israel in remembrance of God's deliverance and making sure that they kept the Passover. 
Again, he's pouring his life out as a godly man to live as an example and to exhort those around him to live godly lives and lives that that honor the Lord. Both the prophet Jeremiah and the psalmist, they are both, you know, we see, you know, in their writings inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, they both credited Samuel as a great man of intercessory prayer. And the book of Hebrews includes Samuel in the great hall of faith. And so all of this tells us that Samuel left a powerful legacy and he left big shoes to fill. And so what we have here in Samuel's life on the the occasion of his death and on the occasion of everybody getting together and remembering and lamenting Samuel, what we have, hey, this is time for someone to step up. And that's why we also read in, in 1 Samuel 25, Samuel died, but we read a little further down and it said, and David arose. And that's what we take away from this is to say, here's a great man, great legacy, big shoes to fill, and yet David now has stepped up. David arose. And he's going to imitate Samuel, just as Paul said, imitate me as I follow Christ. Here's a point of application for you and for me. We need to understand that we have responsibilities. We have duties. You moms and dads, you, you need to understand that you, you will leave a legacy to your children. You'll either leave a bad legacy to your children or you will leave a good legacy to your children. And, it, and it's little decisions. It's little things that make huge differences in your children's life. If, if, if you are, are, you know, being lackadaisical in your faith, then what are your kids going to be most likely when they grow up? They will be lackadaisical in their faith. If you're a compromising per- person, if you're a person that, that, that lies regularly and your children see that, who will your children most likely grow up to be? Compromising and dishonest. And so the thing is, is that you have to, and, and I, you know, this plays itself out in, in different ways. Take a ride with my son in the car. You will go, oh, wow, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, man. Take your foot off the gas, Joe, you know, and, and that, I'm telling you, you know, or in his case, Scotty, take your foot off the gas, but, but, you know, he grew up with his dad showing him that, and so we, our kids become like us, for better or for worse. And so we need to understand that we have this burden of legacy, this burden of responsibility. And so we have in, in Samuel a man who finished well. And so here's David now. He's got to continue this. We see that he, he arises and he goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, this is south of Masada, if you've ever been to Israel. So this is, this is a ways from, from Jerusalem. This is a way out of Judah. This is, this is going out of Saul's territory. Most likely what's going on here is that David recognizes, hey, now with Samuel out of the way, Saul's going to get worse. And things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Doesn't tell us that he went to, to Samuel's memorial and, and probably, you know, I don't, I don't know that, that Saul would be there. He, he might have been there. The, the text doesn't tell us that. Um, if he went there, it was just for show, um, but, but he probably would not have been there just because he and Samuel were so far on the outs, but he more than certainly would have spies there looking for David, expecting him to show up there, so David has to stay away. Um, but while David is there in the wilderness of Paran, God starts to do a work in his life. Verse 2. 
Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, in this culture, if you had 10 sheep, you were considered rich. So this guy was filthy rich. He, he was ridiculously rich. And it says he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the shearing time was the time when it was not unlike if you were a farmer, you have harvest time. That's payday. And so shearing time is payday for, for a sheep herder. And so here it's shearing time. He takes his, his sheep to Carmel to do business, to market there, to get them sheared, to get paid. And it tells us in verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Now, the Bible doesn't liken many women as, have, as being of beautiful appearance. There's only a few examples in Scripture where the Bible takes the time to say she was beautiful. Um, so you think of Sapphira in the New Testament and, you know, and a couple of examples in the Old Testament. And so, so this, you know, this is making a point. The Bible doesn't throw these compliments out lightly. This, this chick is drop-dead gorgeous is what she is. And so it says, you know, here this, you know, and imagine that you got a rich man who's got a good-looking trophy wife. You never heard of that before, right? You ever see in Hollywood, you go, you know, you see the dorkiest, goofiest star and he's got a gorgeous chick, you know, or you see some ugly, you know, rock star and he's got the beautiful babe, you know, and so... You know, some things haven't changed with time. And so here it is. He's got this gorgeous woman, woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man, Nabal, was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Uh, when David heard in the wilderness, now by the way, uh, the derivative of that, of Caleb, we, it, 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 it comes down basically to canine. So, uh, so I don't think that this was so much, you know, uh, being pointed out to say, oh, he, w- he was a descendant of Caleb. I think more of all, it's a dig to say this guy was harsh, he was a nasty knot guy, and he was a dog, is what I think this is, is telling us. But at any rate, we continue. And it says, um, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, Harvest time, coming into some dough. David, verse 5, sent 10 young men uh, up to Carmel. uh, Or I'm sorry, sent 10 young men. And David said to the young man, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we, will come, uh, for we come on a feast day. In other words, hey, we're, co- we're coming when you came into some money. And you're throwing a big feast and you're all, you know, you're, you're enjoying the fruits of your labor. He says, please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, you, you might read this and go, you know, because basically what David's saying is, look, we protected you. You guys, if it hadn't been for us, 
you, you'd have gotten, you know, robbed. Somebody would have taken sheep from you. You could have lost everything. But we were there. We guarded you. One of his servants is later going to say, and we'll look at this next, next time. But basically, one of his servants is going to go talk to Abigail. And he's going to go, look, these guys were like a wall around us. They totally protected us. They made a point of protecting us. And so what David's saying to this guy is, hey, look, you're getting right now all this reward And we played a part in it. Now, it would be a mistake to read this section of Scripture and think, gosh, this is like mob tactics. You know, this is David saying, hey, you know, we're running a protection racket here. And uh, no, David's not saying that. He's saying, look, I'm in a place of need. I was a blessing to you. I, I made sure you were taken care of. And, and he just appeals to the, to, the, to the sense of what's right to this guy. Just to be able to say, look, you're coming into to some dough now. And, and part of that is because of, a big part of that is because of what we did. Could you just remember us? And he, he asked him, hey, whatever comes into your hand. In other words, this is David's way of saying, Look, you know, I, I won't put a dollar amount on it. Just whatever you feel led to give to me, I would greatly appreciate it. We are in a time of need. This is, this is David's heart on this. And so he sends these 10 young men with, with, this, with this request. He says, look, you know, ask your young men. This isn't just our account. You ask them. They'll tell you, well, we couldn't have done it without these guys is what, they, what their testimony will be if he bothers to ask them. And uh, so could you just give us whatever comes into your hand? Verse 9, so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants, and he said, who is, Je- who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Totally an insult. First of all, everybody knew who David was. Remember, he, he was on the billboard charts with the women singing, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Everybody knew who David was. And then he throws in this dig to say, look, you know, the son of Jesse. Again, who's this goat roping, you know, guy that comes from a family of no prominence? It's an insult. And, and, and so he, he says, you know, who, who is this guy, the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from one, uh, each one from his master. In other words, he's saying, Look, you know, not only is this guy of no significance, not only am I saying, I, I don't even know this guy, I really do, but I'm also saying, look, he's, he's just a rebellious guy. He, you know, this is insult upon insult upon insult. And so then he says in verse 11, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meal that I have killed from my shears, Give it to men when I do not know where they are from. Now, what we have here is this man who is a stark contrast from the man who finished well. The the opening of this account tells us Samuel died. He finished well. Godly man. Honorable man. Noble man. Others centered man, constantly looking to how can I bless God? How can I honor God? How can I live my life in in that way? And then you've got this character, Nabal. 
And notice what this text tells us about Nabal. It tells us, first of all, that he was very rich. Now, there's different types of riches in this world. You can be rich in what you have. You can be rich in what you do. You can be rich in what you know. And you can be rich in who you are. I think about this one particular Marine, member of our church, Lee Cohen, rich in who he was. If you attended his memorial, you began to hear about this man's life. You know, the, the, the different ways that you can be rich in this world, the most basic way, the least, the, 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 the least important way is that you can be rich in what you have. There's plenty of fools who are rich. And, and so this is the first thing we learn about him is that he's filthy rich, right? And, and next, we, you know, we see he's got this trophy wife. And, and she's, she's brilliant. She's, she's beautiful. And you're like, what's a girl like her doing with a guy like him? What we're going to find out is that Abigail is actually a godly woman. And, and she's actually, you know, pretty, pretty sharp, squared away gal. And, and we can let her off the hook a little bit because if you understand this culture, basically what you're dealing with here is a culture where more than likely this was an arranged marriage. Where her father said, well, I'll put her together with this guy because he'll be able to take care of her. Now, we don't, we don't deal with arranged marriages now in our day and age, but I'll tell you this, we see women all the time choosing guys based on their checkbook. And, it, and it's, a, it's a profound mistake because this guy, yeah, he's rich. Yeah, he's got good taste in women. But he's harsh and evil in his doings, which tells us that he's an arrogant and prideful man. You know, I used to work in the city of Indian Wells as a paramedic firefighter. And the, the Indian Wells, if you're familiar with the community, it's a wealthy community. And as a matter of fact, the, the motto of the community, the tagline on the community, it was on the side emblazoned on all of our equipment because we had City of Indian Wells and it, and it said multum and parvo, which basically means many wealths. And so that's the idea is that everybody here is very wealthy. And, and I would deal with angry, arrogant people all the time. We showed up to one guy's house, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and you know, how do, how do firemen arrive at your house 3 o'clock in the morning? We're in our turnouts, you know, that's, that's how we can get up and out as quick as we can. So, so we come walking in, we're all in our turnouts. He's furious that we have the audacity to come walking into his house wearing turnouts. He's, he's telling us, demanding that, that, you know, we take off our boots before we come into his house. Meanwhile, his wife is dying of a heart attack. Arrogant, angry, and we dealt with that all the time. We, we used to go in, we'd, we'd, we'd drive into the different country clubs, you know, because we have to go through and do basic business. And, and these guys would be like, you know, why are you here? Why are you driving that fire engine through my neighborhood? Well, so if I have to come here at 3 o'clock in the morning, you, you know, I'll know where I'm going, buddy. You know, this is for your best interest. But these were harsh, evil, angry, arrogant. Not all of them, but many of them. Why? Well, because they've, they, they've got money and they think they're important. They think they are someone. And really, we see overarching in Nabal's life, he's an ungrateful man. 
So, so you look at this gal and, and you think about the gals that we have in our culture today and you think, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Because, you know, and I'll just say this for the single gals here, if you're single, you know, the, the, if somebody's rich, that does not make them a catch, you know? It's not necessarily something that's good. That's good. And this man is, is, you know, he's just a wicked, angry, evil man. And his name is, is Nabal, which is interesting. You might want to just jot it down. You know what the name Nabal means? Fool. That's what, it, that's what the name means. He's a fool. Now, what parent names their kid fool? That's what I... And I don't know if maybe that's his given name or if that's just the nickname that everybody calls. Oh, there's, there's the fool, right? But, but this is what everybody calls him. And, and Abigail will say to David when they have an exchange, she's going to say in, the, in you know, the coming verses, we'll get into next week, you know, he's a fool just as his name implies. He's a fool. So, so we, his name is, so he does. So stark contrast. Sam, Samuel ended... He finished as a faithful man, finished his life faithfully, but this guy, he finishes as a fool. And we're going to find out that, that you know, this man, he's going to die. He, he's, he's, he's basically, his wife, spoiler alert for next week, but basically his wife comes and because uh, David's going to flip out. We're going to see David lose his lid here. And so David mobilizes his men. And he's going to kill not only Nabal, but every, every male member of his household. He's going to go wipe them all out. And Abigail has to go run and basically beg for forgiveness and provide him with all the stuff that her husband refuses to provide him for. And, and, all, and then what happens is she goes home, her husband's drunk, throwing a huge drunken party, living large because he just you know, got all the dough from his sheep being sheared and all of that. And so she's like, oh, I'm not going to tell him now, I'll tell him in the morning. So he wakes up in the morning with a massive hangover, and she says, uh, hey, guess what? I went and I helped David. I gave him all the stuff he asked for, because he was going to wipe you and everybody else out, you idiot. You know, based on my translation. And uh, the guy has a massive stroke, falls into a coma basically for 10 days, and then he dies. And so this guy, he finished as a fool, lived his life as a fool, and he dropped dead as a fool. Jesus told a parable in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12. He talked about a rich man with all of his wealth. And basically, as he tells this story, he says, look, there's this guy, and he's filthy rich, and his barns are all filled with produce, and he decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And the whole attitude, his whole mindset is, you know, I don't have enough. I think it was Rockefeller who, who was asked, uh, dude, you're, you're filthy rich. How much is enough? His answer was, a little bit more. Just a little bit more. One of the richest men in the world. So Jesus tells this parable, and here's how he concludes the parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 21. He says, and, and I will say to my soul, this is the heart of the foolish man. He's going to tear down his barns. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be married. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? And here it is. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, whereas Samuel lived his life focusing on pleasing God, Nabal lived his life focusing on pleasing himself. 
And in the end, Nabal developed an eye infection. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 11. Shall I take my, it's I, me, my, you know, I take my, count, count them, I, my, my water, my meat, I have killed for my shears, give it to men when I do not know, he's, he's got an eye infection, right? Here's my question for you, do you have an eye infection? Because some people, that's the way they live their life, it's I, me, my, and you can go first right after me, Right? I don't care if you go first, just as long as you go after me, because they want to be first. And so we need to take a, a walk with this, because you can either finish faithfully, or you can finish as a fool. So lesson here, man, do I have an eye infection? How am I living? So Nabal's going to die in his folly, and, and you know, it gives meaning to, to you know, James when he says, hey, life's a vapor. What is your life? It's a vapor. You're here for a little while and then you're gone. It's like the morning fog. And a lot of people, they live their lives for the here and now. And you need to understand this physical life, it's a blip on the, the span of eternity. And, and, and you, you are going to, you know, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a millisecond in compared to, you know, metaphorically speaking, the, the rest of the year, you know? And, and so a lot of people live for the millisecond. We need to understand, you got the whole rest of the year. Well, keep in mind that God is still preparing David for the throne. He's still shaping his character. And so we get to this third and final point, a man whose finish was jeopardized by his flesh. So we have a man who, was, who, who, who finished faithfully. We have a man who finished as a fool and now we're going to look at David, a man who's finished was jeopardized by his flesh. Verse 12, it says, So David's young men turned on their heels, and they went back, and they came, and they told him, David, all of these words. And then David said to his man, Every man gird on his sword. And so every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. And so he's got two-thirds of his fighting force. Everybody got a sword on. We are going to go do this. Now, just as God used Samuel to shape David's character, so also he will use a fool. And in your life, he will use wise men to shape your character, and he will use fools to shape your character if you will let him. Right? There is nothing that tries your character more than dealing with a fool. Am I right? I mean, think about it. You ever been there? A guy cuts you off in traffic? You fool. And it's just, it, it, it's more, how you react is more a reflection of you and your character than it is about the fool that, that did whatever it is that they did. Right? And I, and I want you to think about it because we deal with fools all the time. You got an obnoxious neighbor. Right? Just drives you crazy. Pushes every single button. Or you go out of your way to bless somebody, to care for them, to provide for them. You've done something super sacrificial, and then what do they do? They curse you in response, which is what David's dealing with here. Now, what is it about dealing with fools that brings out the worst in us? I don't know, man. And here's when you think about David. He's been through worse. I mean, think about it in the scale of what David's been through. Who has hurt David more than anybody on the face of the earth? Saul. 
And the guy's taken everything he had from him, even his wife. The guy is left out in the field with nothing. And David, when he's dealing with Saul, can get to the place where he's like, don't kill him, leave him to the Lord, right? Passes that test, remarkable character, David. And now here on the heels of that, some guy just, you know, on the, on the scale of things, Saul, you know, Saul's here, this Nabal's a fool, but he, but he hasn't hurt David nearly as much. And yet now David loses it and he's going to risk everything. Let's take him out. I, seriously, imagine it. He goes back to the guys. He's, he tells all those people, hey, everybody mount up, get your swords. And they're like, oh, is it the Philistines? Is it the, the sworn enemies of God and of Israel? No. Is it the Ammonites? No. Is it Saul? Is he coming back? The guy that just totally screwed you over of everything? Is that the guy? No, it's not him. Well, who is it? It's some farmer called me names. <laughs> right? Now, we laugh, but isn't that how we respond? And think about it. I mean, how many times have you totally blown your witness over something that doesn't even really make the matter meter or shouldn't even do it? See, God will use a fool in your life, and I think for some of you even right now you're dealing with this. Maybe you even have this, the neighbor in mind. But God will use a fool in your life just every bit as much as he will use your greatest persecutor, and it's a testing of your character. And right now, David is risking it all. Ecclesiastes 7.9 tells us, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. A couple of cautionary tales, just to illustrate this point. Years ago, I had a guy on staff with me. wasn't here at, at, at Reliance. And um, one of the greatest employees I've ever had, faithful as the day is long. It's a beautiful prince of a man. And we had a, a big outreach that we were doing, and a bunch of punks showed up, and they started causing trouble. And one of these kids got up in, in his face. He was like this 17-year-old. And he physically, in his anger, grabbed this kid and just lifted him off the ground. That's all he did. And that was enough. I fired him on the spot. Because he was a kid. And all of his character up until that point... Now, it's a great story of redemption. Because there ended up being repentance. And there ended up being, you know, just change of heart. And, you know, God restored that man. And just a beautiful man. And God did a neat work. But in that moment, he lost everything. He lost his respect. He lost his dignity. He lost his job. Similar story. Another man in similar kind of thing. He's driving his car through his community. This was a member of our church. Not this church, but he was a member of our church. And he was driving his car through his community. There's a bunch of kids, a bunch of punks there just messing around. And he had this, you know, car that they're blocking his way. And he physically got out and demanded that, that the kids move. And, w- and one of the kids, again, 17-year-old, got up all in his face and he got physical with this kid. He went to jail. The guy, the, the guy did like three years in prison. See, decisions are in a blink. And you can have a fool that, just, that, that is there and it's a testing of your patience and, and all and you can lose it all. And what you need to understand here is David is in real danger here. God's called him to be king. And he's in real danger in this moment of losing everything. 
And so we need to understand, listen, that you, at any given moment, you want to finish faithfully, you don't want to finish like a fool, and yet here you are, right on the brink, you can be a person whose, whose flesh is jeopardizing your finish. Three questions as we close. <clears throat> Question number one, are you on track to finish well? Write it down. Take a walk with that question this week. Am I, am I on track to finish well? And I would just say maybe if you're here today and I'm, you know, talking about, listen, here, Samuel finished well and all of us are going to die. We're all going to face judgment. Maybe you for, for you, finishing well would be just to wrestle with that. What's your destiny? When you die, are you going to stand at the great white throne judgment because you've been trusting in your works? Or are you going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ? Second question, are you living foolishly? Are you living foolishly? Do you have an eye infection? Third and final question, this will be the harder one for you to take a walk with. What are the areas where you are most, most vulnerable to your flesh? See, Jesus said, look, if your right hand causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, it's not literal. It's called hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. But the idea is we need to look at those areas where we're inclined to sin, where our flesh is the most vulnerable, and we need to be ready to deal with those areas.